This is a recording from the UBC Freethinkers 2016 kickoff event on September 9th, 2016. In this lecture, Karen Garst, the faithless feminist, discusses the archaeological evidence for the worship of female goddesses from the Paleolithic era until the rise of Christianity. Garst is the author of the new book, Women Beyond Belief, which includes the stories of 22 women who left religion. Find out more about the faithless feminist and her book at faithlessfeminist.com and make sure to check out the UBC Freethinkers on Facebook. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Okay, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. I think I've introduced myself to everyone but for the audio. My name is Karen Garst. Uh, I was born in North Dakota and I marched in the Calgary Stampede in 1967. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I studied French and when we went to Winnipeg, there's a little community called Saint Boniface outside of Winnipeg that speaks French, so our college went up there a lot. Uh, I earned a PhD. Uh, and I'm going to talk about that a little later, and then did absolutely nothing with it. <laughs> yeah. uh, moved out to Oregon, got a job uh, with the American Federation of Teachers uh, organizing. Then I was executive director of the Oregon Community College Association, and then I was executive director of the Oregon State Bar, uh, which is hurting 14,000 lawyers, which is interesting. And then I retired. My husband and I lived on five acres. Spent five years doing a genealogy, traced my ancestry back to 1635, somebody coming from England, not on the Mayflower, unfortunately. And in 2014, the United States Supreme Court, in a decision, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, based partly on a previous decision called Citizens United, which said, oh, corporation, yeah, you're a person, I got it, that's cool. So Hobby Lobby built on that said, well, if you're a person, Hobby Lobby, which is a craft store, I guess you can have religious views. So what happened is they wanted, I think they wanted to gut the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. So they filed this lawsuit and said, because of our religious views, we don't want to provide certain forms of birth control, like the, the day after pill, et cetera, to our employees. And the Supreme Court, I would say in its wisdom, but I totally disagree with the decision, so I won't. Five to four decision, the five Catholic men on the court being the five, said, yeah, you shouldn't have to do that. Now, it didn't gut Obamacare, and it didn't have that big impact, and the employees were provided with this through a government program. But I was incensed. I came of age in the 60s and the 70s, and the second wave feminists, and I remember a time before abortion was uh, legal. I was at college. I was working on the newspaper. And uh, we published an ad about an abortion clinic in New York. And all the newspapers were impounded. Of course, it was a Lutheran college, so you can kind of understand why. So I said to myself, I have to do something. I just can't see another generation of women having to go through the restrictions that are being placed on reproductive rights. And I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's a Pacific Northwest author. And she says, Karen, you need to write a book. 
And I said, I've never written a book. Well, write a book anyway. So I went home and I said, the only thing I could be passionate about was atheism. So I wrote a book. And it's here. It's on, available on Amazon. The Kindle just went up last week. And what I did was I have 22 women who tell their stories of leaving religion. And it is called Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion. Part of my study was to look at Amazon and the books of Am uh, that were selling well on atheism. And I cataloged 100 of them, put them in a neat little spreadsheet. Guess how many of those were written by women? Well, six. <laughs> so I think it's really needed. Uh, I've met an amazing number of people doing this book. I handed out 15 of those little cards at the Reason Rally. Oh, here's a new book on women atheists. <laughs> and I've met 22 wonderful, amazing women. So it's been a great time. What I thought I needed to do is do some more research. I was raised as a Lutheran. Bismarck, North Dakota, that's not going to be a surprise. There you go. And I went to a religious college where, very interestingly enough, my first class in Religion 101 talked about the different oral strains of the Old Testament, the P, the J, the E, the D. I'd never heard about that, so that was fascinating. It was a very liberal college. I did a report once on uh, Gay World, a book about gays, and said, well, no problem there. And this was you know, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so I started to read books, and I read books about religion, I read books about atheism, I read books about mythology, and developed this presentation that once upon a time there was a feminine divine, but guess what? It disappeared. So because this is a new set of slides for me, and I've only done this presentation a few times, I'm going to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, when you go home this weekend and you're on your computer and you take that card with the Karen at FaithlessFeminist.com, write me. Oh, I think you should have spent more time here, or this wasn't clear. Please add to that. I would really, really appreciate your feedback. I also have a blog where I try to write once a week. It's uh, Faithless Feminist, which is the name of my Facebook and Twitter account. So if you just Google Faithless Feminist, you'll come up with me. And <coughs> On our trip, we spent about a week in Kelowna up here, which was absolutely beautiful. I started to write an epic poem, The Saga of Women, which starts out with the goddess and goes through monotheism, etc. And I'm going to keep working on that. I'll eventually post it on my blog. Um, but I had to quit doing it yesterday because I, I wanted to do this presentation, and I was going around da 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 I thought, that probably is not a good idea. Let me take a break for it. Um, and if you subscribe to my blog, and obviously there's no charge for that, there is a paper on my website called From Goddess to God that uh, is it's a little mini ebook or a long paper, if you will, that goes through this. So if you want some more information, or to see the bibliography or books, et cetera. If you have a burning question, why don't you raise your hand and we'll do it. All right? And then, as an American in your lovely country, I'm really sorry about Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I was practicing my out and about so that I could see if I could pass and didn't have to mention I was an American while we were up here for a week. But unfortunately, we've got this US car and a US license plate, so we were a, a dead giveaway.
Uh, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I'm 66. I've never seen anything like that in our country. Uh, it it's really boggles the mind. And you should be as concerned as we are, because if he becomes president, uh, it's going to affect the entire world. So politics aside. So what we're going to talk about today is the transition from a female goddess to a male god. There isn't a dispute. There's, there's not any dispute that there were goddesses. There is a dispute that there may have been a mother goddess or a mother earth goddess. But there's no dispute that at a certain point in time, 3000, 4000 BCE, there was a pantheon of gods and goddesses. You've read Edith Hamilton's uh, mythology book, and we all know about you know, the Greek gods and goddesses, and the Romans just changed the names. Like, that's too much work. We'll just take years. We'll change their names. That works out. So that there's not a disagreement on. And there's not a disagreement that Judaism was one of the longest-lasting monotheistic religions because it still lasts today. It wasn't the only one, but it certainly was the most predominant one. No disagreement there. And there's no disagreement that Christianity has deeply, deeply influenced Western culture. All you have to do is pick up a newspaper, um, listen to the news, and in the case of the United States, listen to any presidential candidate. You know, God told me to run, God this, God that. We're much more religious than, than here in Canada. The purpose of this is say, what's the impact of, on women? What's the impact on women of, of having a goddess and then not having a goddess. And we're going to talk about what are the memes associated with the feminine divine. And this is a word that Richard Dawkins coined that talks about little bits of culture. Then we're going to talk about, well, how did the Israelites get there in the first place? What are some of the theories of how they got there? And then how did this male deity come about? They existed together for a while. Then the male deity starts to rule alone. What are the memes associated with a male deity? And how are they different? And how does this whole history have an impact on women today? That's what we're going to talk about. Any questions so far? The role of culture is key to this discussion. That dissertation I told you I wrote 35 years ago was on cultural reproduction. So you see, you can, you can come around 35 years later and pick a little piece of it. It was on Pierre Bourdieu, who's a French sociologist of education, that came up with the word habitus to talk about we are born, we're born in a culture, we are born to certain parents, we are of a certain ethnicity or race, we are of a certain economic condition, and all of those shape who we are, and that's what culture is. No one would disagree that religion has been a major component of culture for thousands of years. Keel and Ullinger, who are two authors who wrote God's Goddesses and Images of God in Ancient Israel, said this. And that's an excellent book, by the way, if you want to um, do some additional research. Humans need a cultural system in order to endure. Because such a system is necessary and because it compensates for a deficit in natural instinct, individuals and societies regard their own specific system as natural and virtually necessary. Religion has been one very strong component of culture for thousands of years. Until the United States was formed, 
Religion was the same as government and the same as power in any society in which it existed. So how does culture reproduce itself? And I'm just going to talk a few about a few of these elements um, that influence culture, particularly in, in religion. The first is spoken language. Spoken language developed 100,000 years ago in Africa. Imagine what it was like instead of just telling your kid, pointing and saying, not that way. You're able to say, pick it up, put it on its side. And they're able to say, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, whatever their words were. They were able to tell stories. When we used to live here by the seashore, when we took the seashells in. So that gave a lot. It changed a lot. And it's obviously a key piece of culture today. Music arose perhaps 55,000 years ago, again in Africa. And I will tell you a little story about the impact of music. As I said, I grew up as a Lutheran. My sister was visiting, and we were driving from where we live to Portland, and we started to sing hymns. And we, in high school, the choir, the youth choir for the church, marched down the aisle. God's word is our great heritage. And it infuses you with that kind of that pomp and circumstance. And wasn't that cool? We had these long robes on. Uh, I listened to somebody sing Ave Maria the other day. And it just moved me deep inside. Because we have been doing that for 55,000 years. And it's a part of who we are. So music is a big influence. Rituals. I'm sure you're familiar with rituals in every walk of your life. 50,000 years ago, Neanderthal buried people who had died. They covered their faces with clay. They put seashells in for the eyes. They buried the children in separate little graves. Neanderthal, not even our species, was starting a ritual. Art arose 25,000 years ago. We're going to talk a lot about art. Art is symbolic. And here is a way of representing something, whether it's uh, religion or anything else. This is a key piece of culture that plays a role. Writing arose about 3,000 BCE in Mesopotamia. And we certainly know the impact of writing today, even though nobody does cursive anymore. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they teach that in Canada, but they don't teach it in the United States anymore. It's all printing, right? Yeah. So uh, writing has changed. One of the things that's interesting about this is they found a whole bunch of cuneiform tablets in Ugarit. And I think the city had been burned, but these tablets survived. And they're finding some of the earliest reference to some of these Mesopotamian myths that came from that long ago. So the mother goddess. One of the things when we talk about this is we have to rely on images. We don't have any writing from 20,000 years ago said, I carved this figurine because I honor the mother goddess. We don't have it. There, um, what happened in this regard, prior to the 60s, most of the archaeologists and ancient historians were men. They didn't spend a lot of time on these figurines we're going to talk about. Then in the 60s, we have the advent of women. 
And women started to pay more attention to these cultural artifacts, if you will. Marija Gimbutis is somebody who did extensive work, particularly, and we'll talk about this later, in Çatalhöyük, which is uh, part of Turkey. And looking at the symbolism and looking at the figurines. Now, again, as this gentleman said, can you prove it? No, I can't prove that there was a single goddess at one point in time. There are, however, examples, Iroquois, Hopi, different tribes that were matriarchal, that did have that feminine divine. So we're not really sure. So let's look at some of these images and see what they tell us. The Venus of La Salle, a woman who is uh, pretty big-breasted there, and put her hand on her stomach. Is she pregnant? Is she having a baby? There's a horn there. That horn could be the crescent moon. It could be a cornucopia. Uh, it could be a birma. <laughs> we don't really know. And there's 13 stripes on that. And there are 13 lunar months, and part of the cycle of the moon is also 13 days. So just this little carving is rich in symbolism. Uh, Venus of Liponia, again, in France, where many of these are well-preserved. The vast majority of these figurines that are found are women. They're not men. And they're not found in the back of the cave. In the back of the cave, you can't get into Lascaux anymore, but if you go to Lascaux too, they have a replica. The back of the cave were where the men and boys went with the shaman to talk about the hunt, to paint the pictures of the bison and deer. And they painted over those hundreds of times. They need to do new paintings. This is ritual. This is symbolism. We'll have a good hunt if I go and paint that bison one more time. These weren't found there. These are found at the front of the cave, near the hearth, where the people live. There is one where they found a collection of Cro-Magnon of these figurines that somebody hypothesized might have been a birthing center. You know, it might have been a little place where women went to have kids. We don't know. But this takes a lot of time to carve. Um, this was done for a purpose. Now, it may be another purpose, but there's something there to honor women. Although I did have somebody at one of my talks thought, thought it was maybe pornographic or something, and I said, yeah, I don't think out of stone. Anyway. What do you make of the fact that it's uh, kind of an elongation of female breasts that almost go down like they're giving birth to twins? What do yeah. they make of the large huge waistline that is almost divided into like, like a birthing image. Well, in some of these we'll see they actually are images of, of a woman giving birth. Uh, pregnancy certainly enlarges the breasts. Nursing enlarges the breasts. So fecundity. Fecundity, perhaps fertility. Um, yeah. And you want that so that you're able to nourish yeah. the child. So it's, it's like praying for the rain for the crops. Let me be large enough that I can uh, nourish this child. Good question. So this is a mother goddess giving birth. This was found in a grain bin. So what do we have with a grain bin? We have fertility. We want the crops to grow. Maybe it was a grain goddess. There's clearly records of grain goddess. In fact, uh, you will see on my blog, I did one of a story of a grain goddess that get transformed into a saint. But you just took the story and changed the name of the grain goddess so it was a saint. Um, and we'll talk about how those things get appropriated. 
she looks like she's on some kind of a throne. There's lions on either side of her. Lions are the symbol. Later on, clear evidence of the goddess. Looks like she might have a hat on. There's some hypothesis that she's giving birth, but that's not a consensus at all, um, that that is um, what that means. The goddess and the snake. This is from Crete, and Crete is one of the places where there's evidence of a goddess longer than anywhere else, and we'll see even more recent ones than that. But this is a picture of a snake, and the snake is very important as an image. It burrows in the ground, it gets rid of its skin, it rejuvenates, it's part of a cycle. And we'll see later on where how symbols can last. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So this is a goddess snake paired in a lot of different cultures, not just one. This is, you know, your question, this woman's giving birth, there's nine stripes on her back, the nine month of pregnancy, um, that is a little more obvious. What did they do with these? Did they hold them, you know, while they were having contractions? <laughs> You know, did somebody give them to them after birth? Uh, we don't know what they were used for. We can only hypothesize about that. This is at a time, and I said mm, 3000 BCE. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about when the, um, the god comes in, but I wanted to show you this, particularly because of the snake and the tree. So we have a goddess with somebody. He may be supplicating to her. He may be a god who serves with her. We really don't know, but this is on a seal. But what's important is the presence of the snake, the presence of a goddess with a throne, or a woman with a throne, and um, the tree. Branch goddesses are found throughout the Middle East. This is an association with the tree. We'll talk a little later about Asherah, which is a word for the goddess, and it's also the word for a pole or a tree. They went out in nature to worship her, and these uh, branch goddesses are found in many places. This is my favorite. This is from Crete. Tell me she's not in charge. This woman has got two snakes. She's holding them up. She's got a monkey or a bird or something on top of her head. She's got seven layers of this skirt, which could be the seven days of the week. It could be the sun, the moon, the earth, and the four known planets. But this, this isn't a wimp. This is a symbol of somebody who's in charge. And as I said, in Crete, uh, the goddess lasted quite a bit longer. This is a mural. Uh, where you can see people are bringing her gifts or asking her for something, but she's way up elevated on a throne. So when we see goddesses and gods at this point in time, we know they ruled together. The issue he brought up earlier, was there ever a time when there's a soul worship of the feminine divine without um, any reference? I say yes, but it's difficult to prove. These are clay pillars, notice they're women. I had the opportunity when I was in London a year ago to see these in the British Museum, they're this big. They're very, about three inches tall. Um, and they're found in the houses. These are where they lit incense or lit a light and some kind of a ritual that they did in the house to ask for well-being, to ask for the crops to grow, whatever it was, 
these are all over Canaan. What was Canaan? In Egyptian, that is the symbol for the goddess. That's a hieroglyph that means goddess. So you see a clear linking. And there's the word, Greek word for hygiene, hygieia, also a symbol of a snake. And what do we still have today? The caduceus. Isn't it interesting that that symbol associated with women, associated with healing, gets adopted when men take over the profession? And they keep this. If you ask any doctor today, why in the heck do you have a symbol with snakes? They wouldn't have a clue. But that symbol goes back that far. So, looking at this representation of the feminine divine, what are the memes? And we've talked a little bit about those are those are pieces of culture. How would you define it? One is images. We have a lot of images of females. What gets prohibited in the second commandment? Images of God. Images of God. What happens in the late 16th century, the 6th century? Pope Gregory in Rome says, we got to have images. <laughs> These people, aren't. they can't read. Of course, we don't let them read anyway, and we don't want them to read the Bible. So we got to have images. So the Pope, the papacy, basically rules, up. Oh, images are OK. It's not really a violation of the second commandment. And then what do we have in churches today? Image on image on image. But instead of a, a fertile woman, instead of this, what do we have? We have the Pieta holding the dead Jesus. Totally different set of images. The and the crucifix. Mother-child birth. This is a cycle. The, one of the memes of the goddess is cycles. And one is giving birth. Because the mother goddess gives birth. And then what does she do with death? She takes it back in the earth. It's all part of the same cycle. Hearth and home, we saw that in some of those images, but clearly it's a meme for the goddess. Can you imagine what it was like in the Paleolithic for them to know that there were cycles of the moon and to know that the women bled 13 times a year? I mean, that had to be da-da-da-da-da-da-da. How does that happen? How come they're aligned with these cycles of nature? So worshiping nature, worshiping the mother goddess, cycles, yeah, I can, I can see that. Another key element of the goddess is that she's part of creation. She gives birth. She takes back in death. But she does it through herself. It's not over there. It's all part of the same thing, life and death. So then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> the male deity arrives. One of the precursors to evidence of a male deity is settlement. If you look at hunter-gatherer tribes today, much more egalitarian. Um, Tribes that existed in the past, tribes that exist today, there's not a real hierarchy. Um, they're interested in their basic survival. But once we settle down, once we figure out what agriculture is for, and I have read several places where women who were the gatherers started to see those seeds and threw them on the ground near 
where they were and they sprouted, that's a great deal. Let's do something about that. And herding, well, instead of going out and getting these animals, why don't we take them when they're little and start to make them our own? So we have people becoming sedentary. We have agriculture. We have uh, centralization. So we have more people. So we have people wanting to be in power. And whatever we're worshiping, we're going to centralize that in a temple. We're going to have a locus for that in any culture um, that exists. There's a place to do that. So the precursors, 10,000 BCE, of the male deity. And then we have invasions of two sets of people. The one from the north, uh, Marija Gimbutas calls them Kurgans that may have come down on horses, um, had weapons. But the Semitic people also came up through the Arabian Peninsula, who did have male deities, may have been an influence as well. These first male deities come from, first of all, they come from the mountain. And then later on, they come from the sky. And then later on, as we learn more about nature, they're up there. They're kind of beyond the sky. And this is characteristics of the sky gods. And the sky gods also have thunder, lightning bolts. You see that still in the Old Testament where those things are associated. So for a while, we have them together. They coexist. The, tr the tribes with the male deities come. You got goddesses, fine. We'll incorporate them, put them all together. And that lasts a very long time. And in some cultures, probably still today. But eventually, this male deity assumes a greater and greater role and is going to take over. We have more militaries, which is going to be, a, by and large, a male-dominated. Because you have agriculture, this is my land. This isn't your land. I'm going to fight you to keep my land. And if I believe in this god and my priest is telling me this god is right, then your god's wrong. I can kill you much more easily. So religion is a big force in being able to fight the other as it is still today. If you can objectify somebody as the other, different, wrong, etc., it's much easier to kill them. So we have militaries. We have fortification of cities. And some cities were fortified kind of at the beginning. So how do we get to monotheism? There are several theories about how the Israelites came into the area of Canaan. One is an exodus in Egypt, which has pretty much been disproved. There's very little traces of that that anyone can say it really happened. Uh, there's a possibility they came from Midian, which is in the south. Remember, Moses had a wife from Midian. And Midian had a uh, god they worship that was YHW. What does that sound like? Y-H-W-H, exactly. So it's a possibility. Um, there's also a theory that they were Canaanites. And they were at the coast. There were a lot of things happening. The Hyksos came into Egypt. There was the invasion of the Sea Peoples. And they went to the highlands, which weren't populated because it was safer there. So they may have been indigenous Canaanites, but probably not the Exodus. Interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> um, 
Everyone thinks that Judaism is a, mon a monotheistic religion. However, if you look at the Old Testament, you will see things like this. God presi presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Whoops, what? Gods? Are there other gods? And he's just a bigger god than they are? So there's references in the Old Testament to not just this one god. Karen Armstrong, who has written several books, very well-known uh, religious historian, posits that it took 600 years to really impose Yahweh. Uh, there are so many references in the Old Testament railing against Baal, railing against Asherah, railing against El, that goes on and on and on, that it took a long time to try to get rid of the other gods. We had the kingdom of Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel was destroyed in 722 with an invasion of the Assyrians. Those ten tribes, they call them the ten lost tribes, were assimilated into other cultures and disappeared as a unique entity. Judah lasted on the south. This is a, a very interesting picture on a potsherd, which is just a huge, large piece of pottery, uh, whether to store grain or wine, and this picture's on it. And in the script, which of course you can't see here in the slide, it says Yahweh and his Asherah. Ooh, oh, did Yahweh have a wife? What's that? Asherah's the name of the goddess. How'd that happen? Uh, Asherah is used um, also to mean a pole, but it's worship in nature. But could there have been God and goddess with Yahweh and, and then Asherah disappears? Could be. I will let you hypothesize on that. Uh, 722 BCE, when the northern kingdom fell, we had these goddesses all over, as late as that. Um, in the 7th century, they're still railing against uh, the pagan gods. I will read you Jeremiah 44. Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incense to other gods, along with all the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt said to Jeremiah, we will not listen to the message you have spoken for us in the name of the Lord. We will do everything we said we could. We will burn incense to the queen of heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her just as we and our fathers did, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time, we had plenty of food and we were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. So somebody didn't do a real good editing job <laughs> and kind of left all that in there. And it is believed that the queen of heaven is the goddess Anath, who is the daughter of Asher. Uh, Manasseh, when he was king of Judah, again the southern kingdom, because the northern kingdoms disappeared, was putting cult objects in the temple. So he was bringing those little clay pillars back and putting them in there. The king! So we didn't have a real firm grasp on this monotheism, even that late. And uh, I'm going to forget the name here a minute, just a sec. Oh, King Josiah, when he came to power in the southern kingdom, was still talking about destroying cult objects in cities in the country. So again, not a real good job in entering. They left this kind of all in there. 
So, in 598 BCE, what happens? King Nebuchadnezzar comes, he conquers Israel, and he takes the elite. He takes the scribes, he takes the scholars, he takes them back to Babylon, thinking, well, if I've got those guys, I'm not going to have to worry about any rebellion. Didn't exactly work out that way because they rebelled anyway, and he had to go back, and he destroyed the temple, etc. And they spent decades in Babylon. Decades. What did they hear about in Babylon? Did they possibly hear the myth? Enuma Elish is one of the founding myths of creation of Mesopotamia. What happens in that myth? Okay, you got Marduk. He goes to his brother gods and says, look, I got a deal for you. If you make me top dog, I'm going to kill Tiamat, that Leviathan, as it's called in the Bible, Rahab. I'm going to get rid of her. Will you support me? They go, yeah, sure. Yeah, let's get rid of Tiamat. He cuts her into pieces and creates heaven and earth. Hmm, have we seen that before? Look in the Old Testament for, for discussion of Leviathan. It's, it's the same creature. So they see this. They're also going, how did we lose? We're God's chosen people. What happened to us? How did we end up in Babylon? And so they look at the Babylonian myth. Oh, they got rid of the women. Great, we'll do that too. It is believed by many scholars that it was the exile in Babylon that solidified monotheism for the Israelites. That when they went back, when Cyrus of Persia came and freed them and allowed them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, that they were firmly monotheists. And I think it is amazing to look at this history and realize that there are people today in 2016 who still have this foundation as their belief. I mean, that's the enduring role of culture. Karen Armstrong says that when they left, they had finalized the first few books of the Bible. And they did edit there. I don't think they did a great job. But this is called P. The earliest is called J for Yahweh, E for Elohim, which is a name not only for the God of the Bible, but also L, which is a pagan god, one in the pantheon, exactly. Um, and D for Deuteronomy, which is pretty much just responsible for Deuteronomy. And P is priestly. And so this last edition, and again, not the greatest job editing. They leave in two stories of creation. They got two sets of commandments. But what the heck. So they finalized the first five books of the Bible. So let's talk a little bit about how the uh, feminine gets treated in the Old Testament. What do we see in Genesis? What symbols do you see of the goddess? Okay, Snake. woman. What else? Snake. Snake. What else? Apple. Trees. The fruit of the tree. Nature. The garden. What better way to put down the goddess than taking all the symbols associating with her and making it sin? And of course, who is responsible for sin? Eve. Not so much in the Jewish tradition, but when you get to St. Augustine, he creates this notion of original sin, and it's Eve's fault. And if you've ever read anything from some of those early church fathers, St. Augustine or Tertullian, they are the most misogynistic things you could po possibly read. You had to downgrade them so you wouldn't go to the whorehouses anymore. There you go. <laughs> That's true. St. Augustine was a great horror in his early life. Isn't that interesting? What do you think happened to him 
that he became, and I'm not sure what the word is, when you just shun sex and think women are part, carnal lust is the cause of sin. He had to control what, his own impulses. Yeah. I mean, he has done more damage. Uh, red tent. What happened in the Old Testament with women? What they have to do when they had their period? They had to go in a red tent. My husband back here, I was reading this book called The Red Tent when our son was little, and I said, hey, they got to go in the tent for a week. And he says, great idea. And I said, they didn't take the kids with them. Oh, shucks, <laughs> darn it. Um, but women are seen as what? Unclean. I've been doing some, re some research on circumcision, and circumcision of males made them holy. They were chosen. Women, unclean. Even when circumcision does not continue on through Christianity, woman is still unclean. Adultery. This goes back to this notion of property. If I have land, I want to give it to whom? My son. My son, absolutely. And so what do I need to know about that son? Who he is. Uh, if it's mine or not. So has to be a virgin when they marry. And there's a passage that says, if her tokens of virginity are not shown, she may be taken out and killed. So what does she become? She becomes the property. Now, and she could be stoned or killed for adultery. Well, stoned is killing it, I guess. Uh, stoned for adultery. Well, she do men? It says, oh, shall not commit adultery. Why would you need adultery when you can have 200 wives and concubines? I mean, really, if you can't find somebody in that group, exactly. So this is something that bears particularly on women. I think the sacrifice of Isaac is fascinating. So we have Abraham, who is given the covenant with God. And, you know, now instead of the woman giving birth naturally, what happens? Sarah is barren. What does God do? He takes over that and says, I will make that child come forth. So the complete opposite we have with the goddess, complete opposite. God tells him to sacrifice the son that's supposed to be the leader of the people, and he's going to do it. Do you think he ever asked Sarah? No, no. Is Sarah in this picture? No, no, no. This is the guy. This is the guy God. This is the guy Father. And this is the guy son. Later on in the Old Testament, Jephthah says, God, if you let me beat the Ammonites, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the first thing that comes out of my house. He beats the Ammonites, he goes to his house. What's the first thing that comes out of his house? A daughter. What happens to the virgin daughter? She gets killed. Did God intervene there? No. So, pardon? Well, well, she goes to the mountain to mourn for two months that she's going to die a virgin. Yeah. But nobody intervenes to save Jephthah's daughter. You're right. She's killed. So what are the memes of monotheism? One deity, male. The divine is separate from creation. When you read Genesis, God is up here creating the world. Or he does it with the word. He says, let there be light, and there's light. This is not something organic. This is not the cycle of the goddess. Written laws instead of relationships. We're into the time period now where people are writing. And if you wonder why somebody wrote the Koran, because the people had the book. The power of having a book. We need a book, too, because that really held people together. 
and the written language replaces images. So both in the Judaic tradition and in Islam, there aren't pictures. Totally opposite from all those images we saw of the goddess. And then we have linear time replacing secular time. There's a very interesting book called The Alphabet and the Goddess by Lawrence Schlein. And he talks about, in about 300 pages, <laughs> what the change of writing meant. You know, the part of the brain you use, how you view the world. And you get this idea of, there's a lot of things happening. It's not this solely, but you get the idea there's now and the future versus the cycles that continue on forever. You see an end. And I'm not sure without that linear idea, they would have gotten the idea of heaven and hell in the hereafter. And all, most of the people can write with men. Very few women can write. Very few. Now, in Mesopotamia, in Babylon, I'm not going to be able to pronounce her name, but there is a woman who is the daughter who writes. It starts with an E. It's a very long word. Um, she, in that particular tradition, writes. And we have a focus on a spiritual existence. Not on here, but on the hereafter. So this is part one. <laughs> Part two, which I'm working on, is what happens with Christianity and what happens to further demonize women in Christianity. So I'll have to come back later and do part two. But, and this is U.S. entry because that's where I'm from. Uh, what I maintain is that religion is one of the last, if not the last, cultural barrier to gender equality. We will not have true gender equality with religion. And so I am out talking about this because I want gender equality. I have been amazed. I chose the faithless feminist. I was working with a market person. He wanted to say godless grandmother. And I said, let's not emphasize that, but grandmother, please. So we came up with faithless feminist. But the pushback on feminism has been amazing. I wrote a piece on my blog with a friend of mine. And we said, we need more secular men. And you know, talked about relationships and stuff like that. And I posted on all these atheist Facebook groups. And there's this one called No Gods, No Masters, Atheist Feminist. And I post it. And I'm getting on, they're talking about it or something. And they go, um, she's kidding, right? I mean, we need more men. We need more secular men. And I got into this. And I, you know, I'm a second wave feminist. I'm in my 60s. And I said, how would we have gotten the right to vote in the United States if men wouldn't have supported our efforts? Because they had to vote it in, right? And I think I last, oh, she said, oh, look at her. I wonder if she wants to bake them cake. They were very demeaning, and they kicked me off the site. I was excluded from the group. So it's been a real eye-opener to me about radical feminism and the pushback against radical feminism. Uh, sometimes, not very often, but I will get some going in a dialogue with a man about hating the word feminist, and we'll We'll talk about what that means. The United uh, Nations has a convention. It's called CEDAW, the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Guess who hasn't signed it out of the 193 nations and 186 have signed it? I'm sure Canada has, right? Guess who hasn't signed it? The US. We haven't. Jimmy Carter, when he was president, signed it, but it didn't get ratified. Now, this may very well change in November. There are 52 countries who have had a woman head of state, but not the United States. Paid leave, 188 countries, but not in the United States. 
Do you have paid maternity leave here? Yeah. Oh, you have, excuse me, you have national health care. What am I saying? Wage equality. Uh, yeah, Iceland, probably one of the least religious countries because Christianity got there real late and they said, ah, you want us to do that? We'll do that. And they kept all their baby stories <laughs> and all their myths. You know, we'll say, yeah, but, you know. Um, Finland, number two in this particular one I looked at, and the United States is 65th. Do you think there just might be a correlation between religious countries and lack of rights for women, I think. So that's the end of the talk. Um, that's on the cards. You don't really need to take a look at it. Um, these designs were by Corey Van Hoosen. I should mention that. There's a bibliography. If you want that, just email me and I'll send it to you. So let us open it up for questions.